Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Cohen, and on today's episode, I have Bart K. Bart is a former senior lecturer in clinical physiology and exercise physiology, nutrition, research methods, and statistics. He has published a number of peer-reviewed articles as well as book chapters. He has also consulted with the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team and New Zealand Army and, New Ze- and Australian Defence Force. Bart, thanks so much for coming on for an episode for today. Gary, that's my pleasure. Pleased to be here. Yeah, and um, we were saying, um, I was telling you offline how I've had people on my YouTube channel comment that I need to speak to you. Um, and yeah, of course, they sent me down the rabbit hole and I binge watched some of your videos and I got to try and learn a bit more about you. And I think you've got some interesting things to share with people today, you know, both your personal story, but then also um, with your history in academia and, and nutrition itself. So um, to begin with that question, then what I'd like to find out is, do you think that the way nutrition is taught nowadays is the way it should be taught? I mean, the short answer to that has to be absolutely not. Um, reason being is that those who currently hold sway and teach nutrition talk about nutrition science being evidence informed. Uh, and having looked into that, in quite some depth over a number of years, I I have to respectfully absolutely disagree. Uh, The industry itself is dreadfully lacking in scientific discipline. Uh, There is vast reliance on non-experimental protocols in terms of inferences about what is good for us and what is not good for us. Um, Things like epidemiology, uh, which has its place in informing knowledge, but cannot establish cause and effect. Um, Things like industry money coming into research. Uh, Yeah, basically our entire paradigm of what is good for human nutrition has become warped, twisted and banged out of shape beyond all recognition so the short answer is no no good and when you were lecturing did you find that did you start noticing those trends those issues absolutely Um, it it became apparent to me from day one uh, as a student uh, before i even had any qualifications of my own i've always been someone who's thought analytically i've always understood inherently the disciplines of science what is the scientific method? How do we establish uh, cause and effect? This causes that. This is good for you. That is bad for you. And straight away, as soon as my nutrition lecturer started speaking, it was like, hang on, Charlie Brown. No way is this good, valid, disciplined, um, balanced information. It was just nonsense from day one. So, yeah. Yeah, and so when it comes to the research and the science part, what do you think the hindrance is there? Why why aren't there the studies that are looking more at causation versus the correlation stuff with epidemiology studies? Yeah, that that comes down basically to research ethics. 
when we want to make an assertion about what is good for us over the lifespan as a human, in order to do a cause and effect study there, what you would have to do would be take a sample of a number of genetically identical twins and you'd need to split that population in half at birth or before birth in fact um, which is made difficult if twins are in the same womb but there you go and you would have to subject one of those twins to a lifetime of one protocol and the other twin to a lifetime of the other protocol and then measure the outcomes in those two populations so obviously ethics will not allow us to do that not now not in the future not ever it's it's that's the problem with nutritional science it becomes an associative inferential this is our best guess um, pseudoscience and that allows it to be well and truly open to abuse industry money, lack of discipline, epidemiology, etc. Mm -hmm. And so do, what are some of the big myths that you think are going out there in nutrition at the moment? Uh, I'm guessing because even though, as you said, it's, it's very hard to pin down cause and effect, would you say there's certain things that are just like Captain Obvious, like just don't do that, it's, it's not going to be good for you? Yeah, yeah. There are, I mean, I've got sort of, well, four or five examples I could go to there. Um, the, the first and probably the most pervasive um, piece of nutritional pseudoscience mythology that's out there that anyone who has lived in the century would say straight away to you is this whole idea that the consumption of saturated fat uh, is associated with heart disease atherosclerosis uh, and that it's a problem in that in that respect um there has never not only has there never been any causal evidence for that because obviously what i was talking about with ethics you can't do it uh, and an animal model is is one approach we can use mice in a lab well that's great except mice are not genetically biologically programmed to eat the same foods as humans or have the same lifespans as humans. They have different metabolic systems, so that's not going to be any good. We can't subject humans to, you know, take one twin and feed them low fat, take the other twin and feed them high fat throughout their life. That, that can't happen. So we use this associative data. Um, and then you go to the associative data on the consumption of saturated fat versus heart disease, and there's not even an associative um, thing there. Uh, a classic study was the classic study by Patty Siri Torino. Uh, I think it might have been about 2014. Don't quote me on the date of it. Uh, but basically, Patty and her colleagues did a major meta-analysis on a number of studies. They had a sample size just shy of 350,000 individuals that were studied for 20 plus years for their self-reported sure self-reported intake of saturated fat versus the incidence of hard cardiovascular disease endpoints heart attacks diagnoses of angina those kind of things 
And in any case, what they found was that there was no statistical difference between the lowest quartile of saturated fat intake and the highest quartile. The actual relative risk ratio was somewhere between 0.96 and 1.19. Yeah, so uh, even for a start, before you say the the consumption of saturated fat is associated with heart disease, well, the answer there is no, it isn't. Mm. That's false. And, um, yeah, I guess, again, this is still being taught at a, at school levels and nutrition levels, um, and this is what you were mentioning earlier. How, yeah, what what's what is being taught at the nutrition levels isn't maybe what's keeping up to date. And I guess we could come up with multiple reasons why that might be. But um, follow the money, follow the money, follow the money. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, and what's I mean. Even when you were lecturing, did you see money influencing anywhere around you, or conferences, or any any events, or something? Did you did you start going? To, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that feathers as well into sort of example two of pervasive mythology in in the science, and it's connected with the first one. It's connected with the saturated fat thing, and that's the whole idea that low-density lipoprotein cholesterol is causal in atherosclerosis. Now, a really good um, analysis was done on that very recently. It was a 2018 paper done by some uh, independent scientists who were not funded, who were not influenced, and they basically took the position statement of the European consensus panel on atherosclerosis uh, who wrote this great big long paper about how LDL absolutely is the cause of heart disease. The evidence is absolutely clear and there's no possible way you could interpret it any other way. And if, if you if you do say LDL is not causal in, in uh, heart disease, then you are a cholesterol denier. So, you know, let's, let's draw a parallel between someone who dissents a scientific or a pseudoscientific idea and Nazis by using the word denier. Uh, so let's put a negative connotation on those people. But in any case, you go to the paper of the European consensus people who wrote this paper, and there's a section near the end of the paper that's about conflict of interest. In other words, what money was paid to the authors of that paper by drug companies? For any reason, of course, they won't say this is to influence the outcome of this paper. That's not what they're going to say. They're going to say this is for attending our conference or this is, you know, uh, for consultancy or whatever it is, but you look through that that statement of of conflict of interest and it will stun you. It will blow your mind. It is half a page on that that document. It is, I kid you not, there are like every single one, bar I think two of the authors of that consensus panel had not even one but multiple payouts from drug companies that sell statin medications. Unbelievable. Anyway, uh, the, the, the 2018 paper written by the independent scientists goes through their paper and actually systematically deconstructs their false ideology and shows why it's absolutely not so. Uh, but you've got to be prepared, I think, to go and look at the literature and to have 
some training and statistics is helpful, which most lay people do not have. In fact, most scientists don't have much of an idea about statistics. Usually academic departments have a statistician that the academics can go to and say, how do I do this? How do I do that? How do I massage this data? How do I get this uh, conclusion that the people that are funding my study want it to come up with? How do I make that happen? And they can do that in all sorts of ways, like using relative risk ratios instead of absolute risk ratios. Uh, you can cherry pick your data. Uh, you can use multiple regression techniques, um, which in my humble opinion is just another word for making it up, basically. Uh, it, it's called adjustment of the data. You know, that should be the clue that should give it away for folks straight away. If you're talking about an outcome statistic that is adjusted, what does that mean? It means we have taken the actual statistic as measured and we have changed that statistic. We have made it up. We are lying. Oh, but this is, this is, a, this is a great um, mathematical procedure that's absolutely validated. No, it isn't. Multiple regression, the analogy I use for that is trying to extract eggs from a cake that has been baked. You can't do it. You know there's eggs in it. You can say for sure, yep, there's eggs in it. So I'll put the eggs in there. I know they're there. But you can't get those eggs back. They're gone. They are part of that cake. And it's the same thing with so-called, they call it control variables when they're doing multiple regression. What they're saying is, we are associating this with that, and then we are adjusting it for the age of the people. No, that's trying to get your eggs out of it. No good. Okay? And that's how they pull the wool over your eyes, basically. And they use terminology that people don't understand. They use mathematics that people can't get their heads around. And so they'll throw their hands in the air and go, oh, these guys are scientists. Let's believe them. Yeah. They're not scientists. They're bought and paid for. And, you know, I, I've always thought that it makes it hard then, as you said, um, as a layperson or even a professional, just how do you read those papers properly, those research papers, and interpret them? It's kind of like you need a PhD or, you know, a trained statistician to truly review a peer-reviewed paper that's only published to go, no, that, as you said, that's cherry-picked, that there's missing this part, they've done the wrong associations, and yet, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think a lot of times, too, people only read the abstracts and they think that's it. You know, there's the truth. And it's like, well, yep. no, if you actually read the paper, the abstract's wrong. So, mm. I mean, in a lot of times, an abstract won't even reflect what is actually in the paper. They will actually outright mislead, misdirect, and I am loath to use the word, but I will. They lie about what the paper says um, because, as I say, they've got money coming from somewhere usually, that says, um, yes, Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. Scientist, here is your money for your for your project. Now, you are going to find what we want you to find, aren't you? Mm. And it's, it's, it really is that cynical. Yeah. yeah um, and you've also um, done peer reviews yourself, so you've had to review papers. So yeah. I got to see a tweet from a doctor who, it was fascinating to see when this particular doctor, they were trying to have their paper published and they were getting emails back that they shared the, the photo of on Twitter saying, hey, look, this the editor says I could publish you, but 
this is the fee and then you need to reference other uh, articles from the same journal for me too in your paper and mm -hmm. it just it just kind of shows you how unfair that system is i guess even for someone trying to publish their papers and the troubles yeah. that people go through yeah i mean like an example of that uh as a as a researcher rather than as as a reviewer which as you say i i have done both roles i've been on both sides of the counter if you like um i did a i was involved in a study a number of years ago where we were testing the reliability or repeatability if you like of taking blood lactate concentrations uh, in recreationally active cyclists um, as a measure of, you know, is this going to be a good performance indicator or is this a waste of time? Uh, statistically, what we showed in the study was it's absolutely, completely, utterly a waste of time because the outcome variable is so noisy, so messy, that to get a statistically significant difference between situation A and situation B, you would need a training response that was not physiologically possible for a human being, like too big. So therefore, the taking of blood lactates as a performance um, predictor, waste of time. And so we wrote that study and we sent it off to the journals. And the journal editor came back to us pretty much straight away with, Yes, yes, this is very interesting. We like the way you've done the statistics, very clear, very unambiguous. Uh, however, we have this lovely uh, agreement with the blood lactate machine manufacturers. They give us a lot of money, so we won't be publishing this. Uh, can I suggest you go to this journal? And so it took actually seven years to finally find a journal that would actually publish the paper. Uh, and finally, it was a journal, the editor of which was sick of this kind of thing himself and put together a thing called Peer Review, Fair Review, whereby the guarantee was that there would be no money involved, there would be no, uh, there's no sponsorship of the journal, you would get two truly independent reviewers and, you know, the situation would be fair. Um, Turns out that that particular editor was none other than Professor Timothy Noakes, actually. So thanks for that, Tim. It took seven years to get that paper through, not because it wasn't any good or because the math was no good or anything like that. It was because it would put noses out of joint. And that's just an example of what I'm talking about in terms of exactly the, the sort of thing that you're talking about there. Um, we like to think of science as being above reproach, as being um, some kind of ivory tower discipline that, you know, is not, doesn't involve humans. It doesn't involve corruption. It doesn't involve money. Science is, you know, trustworthy and it's, it's some kind of deity. Sorry, boys and girls. It's not true. So I know we sound like we've been science bashing a little bit here and research bashing, but um, I think it is good to sort of get the yin and the yang. You know, there's good and there's bad, and we're revealing a little bit of the, the bad side to things. But this ties into why I also wanted to bring you on. And what I mentioned earlier, where com people commenting were saying, I need to speak to Bart. And it's because you've also gone through your own personal nutrition journey. And so I think it's fascinating for someone with your knowledge base um, and your understanding with nutrition and you've decided to adopt a carnival way of eating. And so, yeah. you know, it's a hot topic right now. People were, were speaking in January 2019 and people will be going through their carnival month, their first time they're experimenting with going a full month, just all meat. And mm. 
I guess in this case, I'd like to find out um, in, in yourself, what kind of journey did you go through to, that made you think you need to try this carnivore diet? Okay. I guess I've had a lifetime of quite serious health issues and concerns at various times that have come and gone, mostly come and not so much gone, to be fair, except recently. Um, I've had just about every digestive disorder you could think about. I've had diverticulitis. Um, I've had um, appendicitis, although I still have my appendix that hasn't been removed. Um, I've had my tonsils removed because they became infected, as, as was often the way um, in the time I was growing up. I've had serious mental health issues. I've had depressive issues. Um, I've had pancreatitis, which, you know, was in my early teenage years, and I can promise you it was nothing to do with alcohol at that age. Um, I have had fibromyalgia in recent years. Basically, you know, you name it, and, and, and pretty much I've, I've experienced it. And what it boils down to is that, uh, to cut a long story short, the problem is anti-nutrients, naturally occurring pesticides, human added pesticides, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in plant-based so-called foods. The fact of the matter is, as a, as a non-scientific sort of, uh, just as, a, as an idea around it, plants do not want you to eat them. They are going to defend themselves and they're going to do that by discouraging you from eating them. And they're going to do that not by running away from you like an animal can or hiding from you. They're going to do it by basically uh, adding poisons to their bodies. Um, and that's kind of what most plants will do. And, and it's these anti-nutrients and poisons that are having this effect on people, some people more than other people. Some people can get away with a lifetime of self-abuse and not see any obvious or notice any not any obvious sort of malaise, if you like. Other people can look sideways at a packet of biscuits and fall apart, if you know what I mean. It's, there is a, a genetic diversity in terms of someone's constitution, someone's ability to cope with doing the wrong thing nutritionally, I guess, or living the wrong lifestyle for them. Um, I either, fortunately or unfortunately, depending how you look at it, I just do not have the ability to abuse myself in that way. Um, and it really it took me until uh, oh, 10, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, that I started to get this idea that, um, that the problem is eating a lot of things that we shouldn't be eating and that we actually don't need to eat, a lot of people will live in order for their food. They will live so they can eat. They say food is a great you know, source of enjoyment for me. You know, if I couldn't eat this, that, or the other thing, I would sooner be dead or whatever. Well, tell that to someone who really does have that choice and see if you still feel that way. Um, my theory has always been I eat so that I can live, not the other way around. And so what I decided 
was that I should start doing is putting things into my body that it needs and not putting in things as a general rule that it doesn't need. So the first thing that disappeared about 20 years ago uh, were carbohydrates because your body does not need carbohydrates in your diet. There is no essential carbohydrates uh, diet-wise. Your body is capable of making all the carbohydrates that it needs. So when I did that sort of 17, 20 years ago, I think it was, there was a vast improvement in my overall health. Um, I got to, I will call it 85% health for most of the time. Um, but in recent years, things started to slide backwards and regress a bit. I started to have a few more problems again. My mental health fell apart again. I had some stressful situations around my exit from academia, um, shall we say, and, and other things. Um, I had a, a marriage breakdown that had occurred around that time. I had moved to the other side of the world, to the UK, and I was living over there away from my, my supports and my friends and family and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, things just took a dive. And then I went back to the literature again uh, sort of three and a half, four months ago now and found that the carnivore thing had emerged by that stage. It really is quite new in terms of its, its um, prevalence in the literature and in, and in the hearts and minds of the public. And I read through it and I went, yep, okay, so not just get rid of most of the plants, get rid of all of them. There is nothing in plants that you require nutritionally that you cannot survive well and healthy and have a good, long, happy life without. Um, the, the folks that will tell you that you have to have them, sorry, that's, that's another example of the whole pseudoscience, the stuff that is just taken as a given, like, you know, oh, saturated fat causes heart disease. People just believe that now because it's been said so many times. People will say things like, you know, you need to have plants in your diet. You need to have a balanced diet. You know, they are two more of the fallacies I have on my list of things that are just not so. Uh, and so that was kind of my journey. Three and a half, four months ago, I took out the last remaining vestiges of plant matter in my diet. Uh, and within two weeks, I got from 85% to sort of 98. And now I'm basically 100% in, in remission of, of all of my health concerns. Uh, my lifelong anxiety has just dissolved. My mental health is great. I'm having an exciting and successful time as a YouTube personality, which I couldn't possibly have imagined doing even five months ago. Um, my fibromyalgia is completely under control. I just don't have an issue with it at all. My digestion is great. Uh, Bowel function is great. Everything is just basically peachy and fantastic. Energy levels, fantastic. Um, yeah, it's, it, so with my N equals one naturalistic observation, it's absolutely, definitely, clearly in my case, the stuff that is in plants was basically messing my health up big time. That was it. So I'm sold. And again, you know, that's why I think it must be fascinating where you've got the knowledge base, you know how to do the research, but you still have to do that N equals one at the end of the day. You have to test on yourself and see because it's like, uh, it, you know, there's going to be no research on the carnivore diets. No one would have would have done the, the big trials or big studies or anything. So we're in yeah. complete no man's land. And uh, 
I love it that you brought it up, those other mythologies, because that is something I would have asked you is that, you know, you would have had to lecture to people, uh, you know, have X amount of plant matter in your diets, you know, be it broccoli or greens or something, because you need to get X, Y, and Z vitamin or mineral out of it. But you, I mean, even with all that knowledge, you, you're still happy to go, no, nah, I don't need it. It's, it's not necessary. Correct. Correct. Um, I mean, at, at the end of the day, what, when you are appointed as an academic, obviously before that you will go for a job interview and the panel will ask you a bunch of questions and, and they will say, you know, one of the classic questions that they ask just about invariably is what separates you from every other academic that we're going to be interviewing for this job? What makes you different? What is your selling point? To which I've always proudly got up on my hind legs and said, I will never stand up in front of a paying crowd of students and espouse fallacious dogma. I will not do it. Not now, not in the future. I don't care where the money's coming from. I don't care, you know, anything else. As an academic, there's a law that's enshrined basically in all the Western countries around the world. It's called academic freedom in short. Basically, it says that an academic is, as of right, um, protected by law. They can hold and espouse any opinion they see fit, whether that is popular or otherwise, to members of the public, students, uh, other staff members, academic journals, whatever, they are free. It's, it's like a First Amendment American type thing. You are free to say what you want to say. So it's absolutely protected by law. So I always, in the interview, I make that very clear. I will not espouse dogma. I will espouse how to understand the science. I will teach students how to critically look at these um, prevailing dogma and to poke every hole in them that they can possibly find. And these institutions go, oh, great, we've got someone who's thinking, we've got someone who's new and cutting edge and will, you know, move the ball along and get things happening. Um, and then you start teaching and then within, you know, a few weeks you get a knock on your office door and the senior dean comes in and says, now listen, we need to have a chat about what you've been saying to students in class. And I'm like, you know, are you out of your mind? You know, three or four weeks ago, you interviewed me. I told you what I was going to do. I'm now doing it. I'm legally entitled to do it. And now you're telling me to not do it. And then that starts a whole process of um, bullying, harassment, all these different processes that they start invoking and this and that and the other thing. And that basically is at the end of the day why I went, you know, this academic game is not for me. Um, academia was for me supposed to be about a bunch of like-minded people getting together, challenging the dogma, thinking about things, advancing new knowledge, challenging what we think we know. The, the responsibility of a scientist is to set up hypotheses and then attempt to falsify those hypotheses not to support those hypotheses. And so this whole patch protection, support the hypothesis, support the funding source, the curriculum document says this, so that's what we teach. That's anti-science. That's pseudoscience, that's nonsense. So that's kind of where I got to, you know, with that situation. Um, so a pretty long-winded answer, but that was, that was basically how it goes. But it's interesting too, because then 
I'm just trying to think of you in that situation where you you start seeing these people talking about this carnival diet, and it seems it, you know it's a polar opposite because it's just meat versus say vegan, which is just plant. Um, yeah. But even in that case, did you just think, are these people nuts? Are they crazy? Like, uh, do they not know uh, that they need you know to have X, Y, Z other sources of foods? Um, it's, I guess it is. It's it's it is. I guess it would fuel you because it it seems like it's challenging dogma, but I also wondered if if you had a, a period of time when you went no this must be this is not right. Okay, um, no, the reason being I guess is that I'm fortunate enough to have the exposure to science both as a scientist, as a reviewer of others, as well as an external consultant. Um, and I've always had, as I said earlier, I've always had the kind of mind where I've always wanted to push against the traces. I've always wanted to see whose legs I could kick out. That's the, That was my whole thinking. And I'd known absolutely since I started my undergraduate training 20 plus years ago now that, for example, the idea that we must have carbohydrates in our diet, I knew that was false right from the get-go, absolutely false. And I knew that the main nutrient in plant matter is carbs. Um, so when someone said, well, you know, actually we don't have the evidence yet, we're still looking into it, this, the jury is out, the science is not yet in, but, you know, anti-nutrients, uh, naturally occurring pesticides, plants protecting themselves from being eaten, they don't want to be, those kind of things, it all made perfect sense. And so I was prepared to try it because I knew absolutely that there was no chance whatsoever of developing any kind of deficiency problem through not consuming any plants whatsoever because there simply are no nutrients in plants that we cannot do without or that we cannot get from animal sources. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I really didn't resist it at all. It inherently made sense to me. I was like, yep, that's the answer I've been looking for. Um, absolutely jumped in with both feet on that one and that's that's kind of how that developed for me and i know what you're saying others are absolutely i'm going to use the word brainwashed you know that the, the general public uh the general person in the street that you will talk to you will say to them like you know do plant nutrients play an important part in human nutrition and they without question without hesitation they will say absolutely there's no doubt about that whatsoever we must have those nutrients because that's what they have been taught since before they could walk probably um and, and things like you know is a balanced diet a good idea that's another piece of of fallacious dogma a balanced diet in terms of macronutrients carbs protein and fat yeah, let's get a mixture of all of those things. Worst possible thing you can do for your for your health. That the indication is that a balanced diet will kill you quicker than anything else in terms of the different dietary sort of ideologies that are available and that people are pushing out there. You've got the standard American or standard Western diet, the one that is put together by the so-called nutritional authorities. What an absolute joke that is. The one that says 65% carbohydrates, mostly whole grains, if you please. Um, avoid sugar, um, avoid saturated fat, take lots of uh, N3 and N6 polyunsaturated uh, oils, have some monounsaturated oil while you're there. Uh, 
get lots of leafy greens, have five plus fruits and vegetables a day, make sure you have lots of fiber, tickety boo. That's, that's one idea, the, the standard diet. That's the one that'll kill you quicker than anything else, by the way. Uh, if you have any, if you, people say, well, where's the evidence of that? Well, have a look at our rates of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, all these chronic degenerative disorders that people are, are developing, Alzheimer's, dementia, all of those, they are all down to that diet. Um, plain and simple cause and effect. It's, it's a, an inflammatory situation. That's what's going on there. Um, however, the American Dietetics Association, all the Western Dietetics Associations, the Heart Foundations, the Diabetes Associations, all of those associations, they are all owned, directed by big agriculture concerns. Their position statements are not based in science. They are not based in evidence. They are based in money. So that's how that one works. Um, the diet that will kill you second quickest is the vegan diet. Uh, the vegan diet relies upon some evidence that it is superior to the standard diet. There is some evidence that that is so, and there's some good reason why it's so, and it's because it's less of a mixed diet situation. It more relies more heavily on the carbohydrate and soluble fibers in the plant material uh, and it eliminates most of the animal protein and animal fat, well all of it actually if you're, if you're doing veganity properly. Uh, and so that obviates that risk or, or alleviates that risk of the inflammation, heart disease, diabetes, accessing quite so immediately, but down the track it causes other problems. The problems that it causes are very serious deficiency diseases because it's not a diet that is designed to meet the nutritional requirements of a human being. Uh, and so what you find basically is that 84, 85% or so of everyone who ever becomes vegan uh, leaves being a vegan or stops being a vegan within five years for health-related reasons. So there's that one. Uh, the other kind of diet is the ketogenic diet. Again, it works really well, largely, and this is misunderstood, of course, by most, but largely because it's not such a mixed diet. Uh, in terms of the ratio of carbs and fats, it's more fat and less carb. That's very good. Um, so, And there aren't the nutritional deficiencies. There aren't the anti-nutrients. There aren't the pesticides in that diet so much. So that's preferable to the vegan diet. And then, obviously, top of the, top of the pile has to, therefore, be the carnivore diet. Uh, because it is, you know, so uh, completely unmixed. Um, why am I saying that a mixed diet is a problem? Why am I saying that that'll kill you? Why am I saying there's inflammation and stuff around that? You need to look into a thing called the Randall cycle, otherwise called the glycerol fatty acid cycle. You need to understand the workings of that thing, and then you need to understand how to interpret what the meaning of it is uh, sufficiently well that you will then understand, ah, that's why I should absolutely not have a diet that is balanced in terms of macronutrients. That's why I'm fat. That's why I've got diabetes. That's why I've got heart disease developing. That's why I'll be demented by the time I'm 55 or 60. If I live that long, that's what the problem is there. Um, and I actually do a video on that very topic on my Patreon site if people want to go and check that out straight after this podcast. That'd be a good idea.
<laughs> yeah, I'm gonna learn that. Actually, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm not up to speed on it. Right. Okay. So the, the glycerol fatty acid cycle, the Randall cycle, basically, uh, it's more technical than I'm going to sort of present it here. Um, reason being, obviously, I want you to go and have a look at my video on Patreon. But in short, anytime you've got both fat and carbohydrate floating around, they will both actually antagonistically interfere with the metabolism of each other and so what you then get is a situation which is called insulin resistance uh, and that leads to diabetes heart disease inflammation alzheimer's dementia etc 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 so that's that's the take home and i find it interesting when you were talking about the plant matter so it sounds to me that you think that uh, people are going to end up learning about plants a bit like we learned about butterunsaturated fat, that, again, we don't need plants. And you think that may come down in the next 10 or 20 years that it's going to become common knowledge that pl we don't have to have plants? Okay. What, what I get, I don't even know how many times a day, Gary, is I get people saying to me, where is the evidence that your carnivore diet is good for you? Okay, to which the answer is, of course, it does not yet exist in the literature. We don't yet have that science because we're just getting started down this track. And what will happen as that develops and as more and more time goes by with more and more people on the carnivore diet who stay on that diet, okay, unlike the vegan diet, shall we say, you will find that these health issues dissolve they go away people heal they they get their lives back they become so healthy that they didn't even realize how sick they were beforehand some of them um the anecdotes will build up and at the end of the day you know things that we conceive of as science like for example the epidemiology which i know i've already poked holes at or poked fun at epidemiology all that is is a collection of, of anecdotes Okay. A collection of anecdotes is data. That's what scientific data is. So as these anecdotes develop, as time goes by, as more people join the carnivorous lifestyle, as people's health improves, as heart disease in society melts away, as diabetes melts away, as fatness, overweightness, obesity literally melts away, there comes a point where you can't argue anymore. And you have to like sit up and, and pay attention and go, ah, okay, they were right. Um, and I guess I see myself as one of the pioneers a little bit. And I guess at the end of the day, pioneers cop most arrows, don't they? they so do. that's they do. that's where it's at. So again, with your knowledge base and your understanding with nutrition, do you do you see the carnivore diet as being sustainable long term? Absolutely, without question. It contains all the nutrients human beings require throughout the lifespan. Yeah. And do you think that you need to eat a particular meat or organs? Um, any, even in, in the carnivore diet, is there a, a variety that you need to get? Yeah. Okay. So, what well, I mean, I, to make it clear, I don't give nutritional advice. What I do is render opinions on science. So none of this is, is to be taken by anybody as any kind of nutritional advice. But what I say in terms of what the science suggests to us is 
that the best meats to rely upon as our staple are those that come from ruminant animals. In other words, those animals that are herbivorous, that have uh, ruminant digestive systems, those are the ones that we should uh, stick with mostly. And it's not just eat their muscle, it's eat their organs, it's eat their connective tissues, it's use their bones for bone broth, it's dig the marrow out of the bones and eat that, it's, it's getting a mixture of, of nutrients and, and, and the things that we need that way. Um, into that mix, I, I suggest that a, a, you know, a, a generous helping of seafood of both the fish and um, shellfish nature at least is good. I know that there are issues with mercury, heavy metals and various toxins and things in our environment these days. Unfortunately, that's the world we live in. Uh, we can't really get away with from that. Uh, except by, I guess, getting rid of 99% of the people that live on the planet and starting afresh, waiting about a thousand or ten thousand years for the for the mess we've made to clean itself up. Unfortunately, that's not going to be happening. So we just need to crack on and you know get on with the program. Um, so yep, ruminant meats and organs, bone broths, seafood, um, plus or minus cheese, cream. I don't personally think that there's a place for milk and milk products other than, you know, cheese. Um, eggs are good. Again, so long as you're not, you don't have a, a sensitivity to eggs, which some people do. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the, the structure of the diet. Um, and again, that, that will be sustainable long-term. Absolutely. Mm, well, that question. And I found it interesting when you mentioned when you first went carnivore, how you noticed the difference also within two weeks. And other people that I've interviewed who've also gone strict carnivore noticed the exact same thing. Within a couple of weeks, they noticed substantial difference. And as you as you uh, mentioned, was your brain health, your 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 feeling of well being. And Michaela Peterson, who I got to interview, she said the same thing. Yeah, I mean, one of the most immediate ramifications of consuming any significant amount of plant matter is systemic inflammation. Um, your body reacts to the pesticides and things that exist in these plants by becoming inflamed. Inflammation affects your body systemically. It, it affects your muscles, it affects your joints, it affects everything, including your brain. Your brain becomes inflamed and Basically, the, the trend in all the literature nowadays about all sorts of mental health issues, mood issues, sleep issues, all those kind of things, inflammation on the brain, people, is what's going on there. So if you stop consuming those so-called foods that are causing the inflammation and you allow your body to heal, you allow the inflammation to resolve, suddenly that fog is lifted and you become suddenly aware that, I mean, most people will come back to me in two and a half, three weeks and say, I did not realize how unhappy I was. I didn't realize that hauling myself out of bed, whinging about my job, trudging off to work, feeling tired and exhausted chronically all the time. I thought that was normal. I thought that was just modern life. Well, it is if you are consistently poisoning yourself. 
if you knock that on the head, totally different story. And within a couple of weeks, it's amazing. Yeah, I'm just, so, thinking, yeah, just I'm thinking of some of those people who are so scared to try the carnivore diet completely because they're like, I've got to have a little bit of plants just in case, you know. So, well, let me cover that one. Okay. You are not going to develop any serious deficiency diseases, even if I'm wrong, and the carnivore diet is deficient, which it's not, but let's say it was. Within two weeks, you're not going to get any deficiency diseases by not consuming any plants. So that's an experiment you can do. You can go, I'm going to give this two weeks perfectly safely. I'm not going to eat any plant matter of any kind. For two weeks, I'm going to eat meats and organs and that kind of stuff only. You will never go back. If you if you do that experiment, you will never go back. I promise you. So what's your nutrition predictions for the future now? Do you think the carnivore diet is going to end up being taught in nutritional schools? I hope so, because it is the correct indicated nutritional approach for human beings, in my opinion, based on my understanding of the physiology, the science, and every observation that I've been able to make in the last three, four months. Um, there will come a time where the evidence will be so overwhelming that it can't be ignored. Um, what we're going to be up against, as long as there is money involved, is we're going to be up against corruption. And um, unfortunately, that's that's the way it is. Uh, we like to think that at the end of the day, the truth will prevail. Um, I have to believe that. Um, yeah, so I have you, I have every hope. And just as a last bit, as we're near the end here, do you think there are any negative side effects to the carnivore diets physiologically um, on the human body? Okay, there is one that I have both noticed in myself and also heard others speak about. For example, the Petersons have spoken about it. Sean Baker has spoken about it. Um, Frank Tefano has spoken about it. Tristan from Primal Edge Health. Everyone that I've spoken to about this have all gone, yep, that's right. And here's what it is. And it's not even necessarily a negative thing physiologically or, or, or a reason not to do this. It's just a, this is a heads up. Okay. When you eliminate the thing that's causing the problem, the thing that's inflaming you, the plant matter, get rid of that. Your body heals up and gets better. You feel great. If you go back and you put those plants back into your body again, you will know about it, Charlie Brown. Your body will say, hey, we spoke about this. We've got rid of that nonsense. We've healed. You've just put it back in, and now I'm going to give you a massive reaction. You are going to be as sick as a sick thing. Because your body is saying to you, don't do that. That's not good for me. So that's something to be aware of. If you're going to make this choice, I'm going to get rid of this stuff out of my diet. You've got to be prepared that if you, if you cave in and you get weak and you go to a party and there's sausage rolls and salads and fruit and stuff available and you eat that stuff, you're going to know about it. Okay. So that's kind of, that's that one. But that's really the only, and it's not even a negative, that's just a heads up, but that's the only thing I've come across that anyone has been able to say to me that's that's any kind of problem of any sort with the carnivore diet. It's just nothing but positive feedback. It's nothing but healing stories, incredible healing stories. People who have had a lifetime of problems, like myself, you know, and I'm by no means the person who's been the worst, but 
unbelievable stories. Go and check out Phil Escott on his channel. He's uh, He's got hundreds of stories of people that have healed. He's helped thousands of people by just saying, hey, have you thought about this carnivore diet idea? Uh, and he's an ex-vegan, so he's one of the many ex-vegans. So there you go. So there's a plug for Phil as well. Um, yeah, so that's basically it. So in short, you have nothing negative that, that that's come out. The only thing that people talk about often, I suppose, if anything, is the vitamin C issue. Uh, I've covered that one yesterday on my Patreon, which you can access after this if you want. Um, and also you'll see part of that video on my YouTube channel on a um, on a live feed that I did last night. If you want to go and check that out as well. If you want to find my Patreon channel, really easy. Just do a Google search on Nutrition Science Watchdog. And the first 10 or 15 listings that come up will be me. You can't miss me. So that's how to find me afterwards. Okay, perfect. Well, that's actually what I was going to just ask you. What are the social links that you would want people to find you on? So you've just mentioned your Patreon channel. Um, and you're, uh, as you said, an, I can definitely see an up and coming YouTuber. I'm waiting to see when you cross 100,000 people subscribing to your channel. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so is it mainly YouTube then that you would say that for people to keep up to date with you? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the first port of call. That's the first place to go. That's where I'll be doing the, the entertaining stuff. That's, bit, that's bit where I'll be calling out the well-known vegans for debates. That'll be where I'm kind of posting hints to some of the science. I keep most of the hardcore science to my paying customers on Patreon, obviously. Um, I do need to make a living, I guess. So sorry about that. That's the way that is. So I've kind of got two personas. One is the YouTube entertainer, the guy that's all jolly that comes on and uses short words and abuses the the vegans and uh, not in a bad way. I, I abuse their ideology, not them personally so much, unless they have a crack at me, in which case it's on. Um, yeah, and then the other persona is the, the proper scientist who does the YouTube, does the Patreon uh, instructive videos. Hey, look, for example, the Randall cycle thing I was alluding to. If you want to understand that one, you go to Patreon. You don't go to YouTube for that one. So if that makes that distinction clear, that's yeah, it does. Good. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, well, I'm going to put a link to both your Patreon channel and your YouTube channel in the show notes for anyone listening to this. But I just want to say, Bart, thank you so much for sharing your time and your knowledge. I've really enjoyed our interview, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are going to love hearing what you've said and want to hear more of you, and so you're going to get some more followers, I'm, I'm pretty sure, from this. Awesome. I appreciate your time, Gary. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a ball. Yeah.